You're listening to The Photography Show. This is episode number nine for October 4th, 2010, Craft. Hey everybody, welcome back once again to The Photography Show with Wade Griffith and Ted Forbes. My name is Ted Forbes, and unfortunately Wade is out of town once again this weekend, so you just got me today. Um, But anyway, we won't hold that against Wade too much. Um, Things come up and... um, Anyway, of course, I'll give him a hard time. You know that. Uh, but anyway, uh, today what I wanted to do is a couple things. First of all, uh, I've had some comments and things, uh, emails, etc., that I wanted to address. And I think there is a little bit of a source of confusion in that um, I've gotten a couple people ask me. Uh, you know, we refer to our show notes a lot in this podcast, and I didn't ever think to clarify this. Um, but we actually have a show website, and if you subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or some kind of podcast aggregator, obviously you never hit the website; you just get the episodes. Um, but if you want to check out the website, I highly recommend doing that. That's where we do keep all the show notes, links to things we talk about. And there's going to be a bunch of them today because I kind of have a topic planned here that's going to be pretty link intensive. Um, but anyway, the URL on that is if you go to www. I can't talk today. www.thepublicbroadcast.com. So go to thepublicbroadcast.com and you'll you'll see the link for the show on there and then you'll see where the episodes are and stuff like that. Uh, the Public Broadcast is kind of a little network that I have where I keep several different podcasts that I do and uh, mainly the two photography podcasts are the ones that I keep up with the most. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, I do have a second podcast which actually was the one that came first. It's a couple of years old now and it's called The Art of Photography. It's a completely different format. We do a video format in there. And uh, the episodes are shorter. They're more tutorial-based in nature, and they're video podcasts. So anyway, um, but definitely that's where you go to check out the show notes. So I wanted to make that very clear up front, and there's going to be a bunch of them today. Um, Another thing that I want to kind of turn you guys on to, if you haven't checked it out, we are going to start a Flickr group for this podcast. Uh, But right now, um, we just have the one for the other one, and the URL on that is... um, is flickr.com slash groups slash art of photography so flickr.com slash groups slash art of photography go join the group check it out and uh, join the discussion basically Flickr is really cool because the Flickr groups allow you a place to <clears throat> join the group and you can post photographs and you can also uh, participate in the discussion forums on there and I really want to say that lately I mean it's it's really kind of cool for me because you know one of the reasons that I got into this and wanted to start podcasting in the first place is that I listen to podcasts on my own and unfortunately for me a lot of the photography podcasts it just seemed like there was kind of a hole there of you know really talking about photography um there's there's some very good podcasts and a lot of them are done by people i know and you know so i don't want to uh single anybody out but i think the unfortunate thing for me is that a lot of podcasts tend to uh, they kind of get into a big gear discussion and that's as far as they go and you know there's nothing wrong with with gear and equipment i mean it's a big part of what we do as photographers but it really didn't have anything to do with getting any better as a photographer or being creative or creating images or pictures or anything like that. Um, it just, in fact, the problem that I have with it is I think a lot of people, for a lot of people and myself included, it's really easy to use equipment to start being an excuse for not working harder or doing something or taking on a project, you know, thinking, well, I'd love to shoot portraits, but until I can afford the Nikon 85 millimeter lens, then, you know, uh, you know, I'll start doing it then. Well, that's ridiculous. You can do portraits with any lens. You can, you could, you can create images on any camera, no matter how cheap or how expensive. And so that's my point. And I, you know, I harp on this. I've been harping on this for several years now that photography is not, it has nothing to do with equipment and, you know, Nikon and Canon, God bless them. They've spent billions of dollars in research, uh, 
uh, getting digital cameras to the point they are today, and they need to sell them. And I, I don't fault them for that at all. They make wonderful products, both companies. Uh, but they run ads, and they sponsor magazines. And, and I think uh, largely that's kind of responsible for uh, you know this mindset that that for some reason photography is dependent on equipment and it's clearly not uh, but anyway back to what I was saying about the Flickr group one thing that's really impressed me is I've had you know the art of photography podcast for a couple of years now, and to see people respond kind of with this same mindset that yeah it doesn't have anything to do with it, and let's talk about photography, let's talk about how to make better images, let's talk about problems that we're having, let's t- talk about you know inspiration that we have, let's talk about burnout, let's you know whatever it is. I think those are the kinds of things that are important to be discussing, not so much you know how many lenses you own or what's in your camera bag or you know thousands of other blog post titles that I won't go into. But anyway, uh, but anyway, all that to say, there are two threads specifically that I've seen recently that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the first one is really cool. Um, it was uh, the title of the thread was, you know, what's the best photo that you've seen today? And basically people respond in the thread and they throw an image in. And God, what a great source of inspiration. What a great way to find new photographers you're not familiar with. And most of them are amateur unknown people that are just have Flickr accounts. And, you know, for whatever reason, somebody saw their photo and liked it and put it up. I think that's fantastic. And uh, I love seeing stuff like that. Uh, There was another really interesting thread that was on there this week that kind of got my attention. Uh, on motivation, and basically somebody had you know posted on there, what is your motivation when you start getting burnt out more or less and you know it can photography can be very frustrating there 's a lot of photographers out there 's a lot of people who you know basically anybody who owns a camera can call themselves a photographer, and you know as a result, with things like Flickr and things like that, you know the value of one image has been taken down a notch um, i 'll talk about this in a minute, but it 's kind of like what 's the difference between average and mediocre well, not much because there 's so much of it out there. If you're going to be average, you might as well be mediocre because it's not good enough to stand out. And, uh, you know, I think that was a really interesting thread because I think we all feel like that from time to time in terms of, of motivation. And, and anyway, so the theme today I wanted to talk about was kind of take that as a starting point and talk about craft in general and what goes into craft and what goes into being a photographer. And I also want to clarify something because I've had an email on this um, that I, I realized that we have all kinds of different photographers who listen to the show. And I don't mean to single any one group out. I know that, you know, uh, Wade and I tend to talk a lot about, uh, you know, being a professional or going pro or something like that. And I realize there's a lot of people out there that uh, have no professional aspiration of photography whatsoever. They do it for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's brilliant. In fact, I think some of the better photographers that I know are people who don't make any money at it at all. And and But anyway, my point here is that I'm not targeting out anybody specifically because I think we all kind of come together or, you know, we all listen to this podcast under the common assumption um, that, well, there's, there's several. We have the desire to create, we have the desire to be unique, and we all have the desire to get better at what we do. Otherwise, why would you be listening to the podcast? You don't want to get worse at what you do. And if you're content with what you do, you probably wouldn't be seeking this out. So anyway, I don't care if you're a pro or an amateur or you want to do gallery work or whatever it is. Um, I, th- I think that's the most important thing is just to remember those three things. You know, you want to create, you want to be unique, and you want to get better. Um, Anyway, but this motivation article, and this is kind of where I want to talk about creativity a little bit, uh, one of the... the, um the um, members of the group offered a response and was saying that, you know, over in iTunes U, uh, that there's an interview with uh, Chuck Close. And if you're not familiar with Chuck Close, uh, you probably uh, do yourself a favor and get familiar with Chuck Close Googling. Uh, he's kind of one of the bigger name fine art um, 
and I don't even really want to call him a photographer because he does a lot of printing and a lot of painting and a lot of other things too. He's just a brilliant artist, uh, unbelievable photographer as well. And Chuck not only is good, but he's one of those artists that, uh, you know, this may sound a little cheesy to compare him to Mozart, but you know, if you look at, at, at you know classical music composers, you you kind of have. I think uh, I had a composition teacher years ago, and and when I was studying music in college that was you know talking about the difference between beethoven and mozart and you know with mozart uh, if you're not familiar he was extremely prolific and made people other composers jealous because of his ability to just basically crap out good music you know and and he wrote a v- huge volume of stuff and it was all incredible and then you have beethoven on the other hand who really anguished over things and thought things through and probably overthought them too much he still made incredible music but he had to work at it, you know. He was constipated. Mozart was just a flow of energy, and you know, there's. I think you see that in any art now, um, but particularly Chuck Close is one of those who's who's very prolific, and and just about everything he does is incredible and mind blowing. Uh, but anyway, Chuck Chuck made a, a comment, and this is really interesting too. It's this is also very impressive when you find out that that Chuck Close is handicapped. But uh, it, I mean, that's such a little part of who he is and what he does. It's just oh wow, he doesn't walk. Um, but anyway, he's he's amazing. Uh, He's one of my heroes, certainly. Uh, but anyway, this this guy in the forum had said that you know Chuck Close's quote was inspiration is for amateurs and professionals get up to work every day. And think about that for a minute. Inspiration is for amateurs. Professionals get up and go to work every day. Now, th- I think that's a very extreme opinion on this, and I'm not going to argue it at all because I believe in it wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, I think there's several ways that creativity and inspiration will hit you as an artist. And I don't care whether you're a photographer or a painter or a musician or a basket weaver. Um, you know, there's several ways that creativity will come. And one of those is you can – sometimes you're hit with an idea or you're, it just comes to you. And a lot of people – I mean, that's kind of the the fantasy notion that uh, I think people go to an art museum and they want to believe that there was this divine inspiration be- behind images. And sometimes there is, but it's so rare. It's, un- you know, it's unbelievable. Um, it, creativity involves a lot of hard work, and it also requires you to be okay with, you know, some dud work, too. Not everything we do is great. Not everything I do is great. I'm sure if you sat down with Chuck, he would probably tell you that he doesn't feel that everything he does is great. But you can't get to the great without making the bad stuff. Um, if you just don't work at all and you're waiting for it, it isn't going to come. Uh, there's another interesting quote. Uh, I've been reading a book by um, an author named Seth Godin, who does incredible books towards kind of geared towards creative people. Um, and his latest book is called Lynchpin. And, and in Lynchpin, he's talking a story about a story about Steve Jobs, you know, the CEO of Apple. And apparently in the early days of Apple, it was the night before they were trying to get something out. And one of the software engineers was laboring over a piece of code. And no, it can't be like this. And I've got to rethink it. And, this, like, and Steve Jobs was noted for the comment of saying that, uh, well, real artists ship. And uh, Seth likes that quote, and I do too, <coughs> that real artists ship. Now, what does that mean? That means that that if you're a real artist, you're going to put your work out. And uh, it's okay if it's not top quality every time. You'll get another opportunity. It doesn't all have to be great. In fact, I don't think it can all be great. I mean, for the you know the ratio of Mozart's to, to, to Beethoven's is, is so narrow. I mean, there's a lot of great composers. Most of them in music labor very hard at what they do. Once in a great while, somebody comes along who just seems to be very natural at it, and uh, it's a phenomenon that can happen. But it's just it's it's rare, and most of us can't sit around and wait for that or assume that that would one day uh, be a thing. And what's also interesting, you know, Seth talking about Steve Jobs in this sense is that you know most people would you consider Steve Jobs to be an artist, no matter what you think of Apple, and. 
his point is is that you know creative work and I, I deal with this sometimes too when people say what do you do for a living and, and you explain but creative work doesn't necessarily limit itself to artwork uh, you can be in fact I don't think it does at all um, think of it this way think of a doctor or a surgeon um, there's a large amount of creativity that goes into a scientific field like that um, you know if you have a, um, a medical problem that, that people can't find a solution to uh, you need your, your your doctor to be fairly creative and try, try to you know think outside the, the boundaries of, of what they think is going to happen and, and, and work at finding a solution and and so, you know, Seth's whole notion of this book is that you've got to approach everything you do as if it's art. And even if it's making sales calls, there's an art to doing it, and you can be better than everybody else. You've just got to practice that so, art. You know, and that's what we established that. Then, you know, I think the, the core question is how does one be creative? And if you go to your local borders or whatever your local bookstore is, I can guarantee you there are many, many books on the shelves on how to be creative or, you know, the artist's way or, you know, things like that. And I can guarantee you 99% of them just suck. And that's just how it is. Um, they, they, people think there's a magic answer or, or a simple answer or a magic wand you wave and, oh, this is how you be creative. And it's not, it's not that simple. Um, those of us that, that kind of have a, a handle on this, you, you know that, that there are many ways to do this. And what you've got to do is you've kind of got to get in a groove where you know how your mind works and you know how you can address those kinds of things. Uh, like I said earlier, the first part of this is acknowledging that you can wait for inspiration to hit or you can actually sit down and do some work. Uh, you've got to be okay with knowing that you know, it's a journey. You don't just sit down and from day one turn out great photos. That just doesn't happen. You take a bunch of different photos that maybe aren't so good, but more importantly, you learn from them and you learn from that process of creating them. And that is the important part. Um, you also, you know, and, and then you have to ship. I mean, basically, you've got to put your work out there. You've got to, and this, this, this applies especially if you want to make a living at it or if you want to sell prints or you want people to know what you do. And it's hard. It's hard to put things out there because I think, you know, there's a voice inside all of our heads that sits back there and wants to degrade our own work. And I think everybody has that. Even if you do something great, you tend to question it. You know, you could have a great print and you're sitting there looking at it over and over again thinking, well, is this really good? No, I don't think, you know, something in your in your head is telling you, no, this couldn't be good. And that's a real important thing to um uh, to, to try to, to challenge because that's a natural tendency and it's real important to try to overcome that and that's why it's important to go ahead and get in the habit of putting your work out there even if you just have a Flickr account and that's where you post your work or if you have a photo blog and you post it there you could go anonymous if that bothers you but it's real important to get it out there and get used to people looking at it um, otherwise you know I guess you could make art for yourself but it certainly becomes more fun when when you can share that with other people if you you know Seth Godin calls this the gift that you share with the world and and, uh, you know, I think that's really important. Um, you know, I'm, I, I feel honored that, that the, the, the artists that I look up to the most have share, shared their work because they greatly inspire me. What would have happened if some of them had just said, you know what, we're, I, you know, I don't want this to go out? You know, I think that would be kind of a shame personally. Um, but anyway, the other thing too, and, and you know, I'm making this, this, um, you know, this comparison to uh, – well, I'm going to make this comparison to music. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, having a composition background, and when I was in high school, I played guitar and some piano and took it real seriously and eventually studied in college. And, you know, what was interesting to me is when, when you know, I compare, like, 
you know, practicing guitar to, to friends that were my photography friends, it, there was a huge difference because, like, you know, let's say somebody t- who plays the violin, you know, who, who is working at Juilliard or something, they practice hours every day. They're constantly working and they're constantly trying to get better and they know who everybody is. They know who they have their heroes they look up to, they have their colleagues and they, they, they're familiar with their work. Um, and what's interesting is, like, photography doesn't seem to have that kind of you know uh, rooting to it and i don't know why it's interesting to me i mean i think everybody ought to know who photographers are you ought to know historically who people were um you need to know at least the big names and what was significant about their work and be able to see it and identify it uh, and and understand what made that great or what made that important in the history of photography um i think it's real important to know who's working today and who you look up to and who who's inspirational uh things like that and it's also important to practice nonstop. and it's different because you know in music you're going to learn how to play scales and our and chords and things like that. And photography didn't really have a set fundamental structure like that. But it kind of does in a way. I think you, you know, creativity is like a muscle. And when I found that I haven't been doing anything creative in a while, it's harder to come up with those initial ideas. Maybe it's the voice in the back of my head that says, this can't be any good, go on to the next idea. Or, But I really feel like it's a creative muscle. It's like, you know, the more you exercise it, the easier it's going to be just to be able to turn on the dime. And that's really important. And I think it's really important to shoot all the time. And, you know, a lot of times I repeat myself on this podcast because we've talked a lot about uh, cell phone photography and, you know, specifically the iPhone and things like that. I mean, how much easier could it be to have a camera on you? It's connected to your phone. Yeah, they're not, you know, the they're not going to rival the uh, most expensive DSLR in terms of quality, but they're going to take images that are good enough. And why can't that be a sketchbook? It, I mean, that certainly is for me. I'm constantly taking pictures on my phone. And, it is a sketchbook of sorts. You know, most of that work I have no intention of, you know, quote unquote, putting out there. I mean, I put it on blogs and things like that, but I'm not going to sell prints to those kinds of things. I might get one that I would, who knows? Um, but, you know, it's really easy for people to say, well, you know, my only, my phone is only a three megapixel or five megapixel camera, and uh, the, the resolution isn't going to be high enough on there. I'd rather shoot on my DSLR. Well, so what? You're not going to take the picture because it doesn't give you the resolution to go print on a billboard i mean come on that's ridiculous you want to take pictures and you need to be taking pictures all the time um so anyway these are some general things um and and learning how to stay on target too and especially if you're practicing and and, and doing this some days you get up and uh you've done the same thing all week because you're commuting to work or whatever and you start thinking okay well i've shot everything and you know which is you know, load because there's always something to shoot. Uh, but what's interesting is like you, there, there comes a point where you need to lean into it and push yourself a little bit. And some days it's not fun and you're not inspired. And but that's how important it is to keep working anyway. Um, last time I mentioned Seth Godin, and, and if you haven't read any of his books, I recommend any of them. They're all great. Uh, Lynchpin is his latest, and specifically is a lot of these things I'm talking about because obviously it's something I'm reading through right now. Uh, but anyway, Seth in in several of his books has a concept of what he calls the lizard brain. And this is so on target. And, you know, you think of the lizard. The lizard wants to sit in the sun and eat leaves and be happy. And basically, it it has a relaxed response and it has a frightened response. Anything that disturbs that habitat, the adrenaline kicks in and the lizard says, oh, make it stop. I just want to sit in the sun. I don't want to be eaten by, you know, this bird or whatever. And, you know, I think we all have the lizard brain. We have a side of our brain that basically just wants us to be comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's built into our psyche. It's, it's literally a physical part of our brain that's responsible for, for impulses of, you know, f- you know, fight or flight, those kinds of things. Or 
or and, and it wants to be happy. It wants to maintain stability. A lot of times when you're making art, and I think Seth is just dead on uh, with this, is there is discomfort that's 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 shown at times. You know, with musicians who who play on stage, this could be stage fright. Uh, with photographers, let's say you're going to do a show and you have to hang your work up, and people are going to see it, and all of a sudden there's this 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 kind of frightened impulse that kicks in and it could be a variety of things it's like well what if what if people think this is awful or what if they laugh at me or what if this is bad or what if i'm no good or you know and the lizard brain is kicking in and it's not feeling very comfortable with these things and it just wants to make them stop and or it could be um you know on a different level it could be a day where you're just not feeling particularly inspired but you need to go out and and still try and shoot and still work on on your craft anyway and the lizard brain doesn't want to do that because the lizard brain would rather come home from work and watch television or relax or take a nap or do any variety of things that are easy to do and very comfortable not that there's anything wrong with those things but uh anyway so it's it's a matter of knowing when this lizard brain is going to kick in and how to respond with the creative side of your brain which is going to uh you know push through even sometimes when it's when it's difficult and when it's not very inspired when it's when it's hard um anyway i I think i want to start getting into photographers now and i want to talk about some people who i think you know, the, their brains and their creative side really sets them apart. Um, they don't do anything particularly technically outstanding at times, but uh, it, it's it's just kind of this shrewd mental capacity that I really think sets them apart and makes them step up as artists. And um, anyway, I'm, again, all the show notes for uh, for these guys are going to be you know listed um, on the website. Uh, but basically, I'm going to break this down into a couple different types of photographers. You know, you have your amateur photographers, you have professional photographers, and then you have fine art. Now, I'm going to separate professional photographers and fine art photographers because that is two different things. Um, professional photographers, actually, I had a friend one time who said the biggest difference between uh, you know commercial art and fine art is in commercial art, you tell them what you're going to get paid, and then you do the work. And in fine art, you do the work, and then you figure out what it's worth. And it, yeah, basically, it's deeper than that. But um, but it is a different approach. Uh, fine art is typically um, solving problems and creative solutions in the in the artist's brain specifically, or what they see. Uh, with professional uh, work or commercial work, you're usually um, catering towards the um, the client or the person who's paying your bills. Now. You can be very creative within those those confines, and that to me is kind of one of the the most impressive because I think that is the hardest vocation to be in is when you're working uh, with a client type situation, and uh, you know you get all the weird things like I'll know it when I see it, I'll know good when I see it, and they don't know what they want, things like that, and so you know. I think when a professional uh, or when a, a commercial photographer uh, shoots a job and and pulls it off and does something that's miraculous and creative, I know that not only did they have to do all the work to be creative with that, but then they had to go sell it to the client, and that's two hard things. And that's why and those people have you know uh, my utmost respect. Uh, but anyway, a couple of people I want to talk about. Um, for fine art, we talked about Chuck Close, and like I said, go look him up if you if you're not familiar with Chuck. He is just simply amazing. Uh, he loves to talk and be interviewed, and so it's real easy to find interviews and things with him too. Um, there's a lot of free video resources, things like that. You might check YouTube even. I'll put some links. I'll, I'll just that one just occurred to me, so I have to go look him up. Um, <clears throat> another uh, contemporary fine art photographer that I want to look at is uh well it's hard to look at in an audio podcast but uh, i'm going to talk about him uh and i think i'm going to do a, a little thing on him in my other video podcast because i think he is really important he's one of my favorites japanese photographer his name is hiroshi sujimoto and uh sujimoto is 
uh, I think he's brilliant. Uh, he's one of my absolute favorites, and that's kind of why I'm kicking off with him. Uh, he kind of embodies this Japanese style of just complete minimalism. And so, for instance, he did a series of seascapes. Now, it, another thing I'm going to say about Sujimoto is kind of each one of the projects that he does is radically different than the one before. Um, it's hard to find. I mean, he definitely has a style, but it's not an obvious aesthetic style, I guess is what I'm saying. But anyway, he did these wonderful, you know, uh, minimal seascapes that are just mind-blowingly brilliant and beautiful, and and when they show, they're blown up to these huge proportions. He also did a a series of portraits um, uh, people like King Henry VIII. Uh, anyway, it, it was kind of this tribute, this this throwback to this old master style of painting that you would see, you know, in maybe the 17th or 18th century, and kind of took that but made him black and white photos with these huge blobs. And what's what's even creepier is that he shot wax figures for the portraits so it's a wax figure of king henry or whoever it is um you know anne boleyn things like that beautiful series of work um and uh, i think one of my favorite projects that he's done is probably the one he's probably the least known for uh it's a personal project that he did and if you go look at his website you can see these um he did a bunch of collecting of uh fox talbot negatives okay so fox talbot was one of the first photographers um literally ever um Probably not the first, but definitely in that first group of guys that that kind of were frustrated uh, people with no drawing skills that wanted to make images, and they were working with chemicals and light sensitive materials. Anyway, Fox Talbot it was brilliant in his own right, um, you know, in his day, and did all these images of uh, of various things like leaves and you know pieces of lace and things like that, and uh, as well as some landscape types of things and still lives and, and what have you. And what's interesting is Sujimoto did a bunch of collecting of of some of these original Fox Talbot negatives, many of which had never been made into prints. And so he did a whole series where he, you know, the whole mindset was what if I took Fox Talbot's work and what would he print them with the technology we have today? What would he, you know, it's, it's purely hypothetical, but, but it's such an interesting project. And what I guess, you know, the, the thing that strikes a chord with me is that you have one of the very first photographers who I absolutely you know think the world of, and then one of the most recent photographers that I absolutely think of the world of. So within these prints of of uh, Fox Talbot's negatives, you kind of, in a way, I, I think you see the entire history of photography unfold uh, in a technical perspective, um, in an aesthetic perspective. I mean, it may be going a little deep on this, but but to me, anyway, they, they really are. It's an interesting project, and I think it's the right guy doing it let's just say um, moving along there's a couple other photographers uh, Michael Kenna is a British photographer who I think is fantastic he also has this very minimal style to him uh, shoots black and white does just simply beautiful work and uh you know, I mean, I've talked about him on the other podcast a few times, and and uh, he's he's incredible. Uh, I'll put a link to his work too. And then finally, there's another guy I want to talk about. I mean, I could go on for days. I'm just mentioning my favorite photographers at this point, but I'm trying to you know get you inspired to be creative. And I'm actually going to give you an assignment at the end of this podcast. But the last of the fine art guys that I was thinking of tonight um, that I think is fairly significant, if you're not familiar with his work, is a guy named Tom Burrell. And Tom lives, uh, oh, I think he lives up in Pennsylvania these days. Um, he kind of came on the scene in the 80s he was uh, Robert Maplethorpe's personal printer and so he worked in a dark room and printed Maplethorpe's work all day and he graduated from uh, one of the schools in New York I think it was SVU School of Visual Arts I may have that wrong but anyway um, uh, but Tom's work is incredible and you know after Maplethorpe died Burrell decided to step up and become a photographer on his own and do gallery work and I think his knowledge of printing I mean it's just it's it's just 
mind-blowing the quality of work that he does. He had a book that uh, 4AD Records actually strangely put out uh, in the late 90s um, that has a lot of his uh, uh, New York landscapes, um, Bethlehem Steel Mill photos, things like that. Uh, he's simply brilliant, and he does a lot of uh, early wet plate, wet, excuse me, early wet plate colliding stuff. And so it's like his work really spans the entire history of photography, kind of all wrapped up into one. He does pinhole shots. Um, he does really interesting printing techniques like selenium toning, uh, tea staining, things like that. Um, it's simply brilliant. And what's interesting is he's kind of stopped doing a lot of that. And his latest work, at least um, in the Robert Klein Gallery, uh, has been digital color photos, which is kind of a huge shift. But I think you know it's kind of a new thing that once he gets that going, he'll continue to blow minds with. Uh, but anyway, Tom Burrell's work is, is simply fabulous. His website hasn't been updated in eons, and it's mostly his classic work. But don't let that stop you. It's, it's the stuff you want to see. It's, it's fabulous. Um, it, in terms of commercial photographers, uh, you know, a couple people that I think everybody needs to know. Ani Leibowitz, I talked about her earlier. Uh, Ani Leibowitz, uh, no, the bulk of her career really got started uh, when she worked for Rolling Stone magazine. She was one of the few people. Uh, she was really young at the time, too, who, who had the nerve to go on tour with the Rolling Stones kind of in the height of their drug period. And I think it cost her a lot of her own health <laughs> to do this. Um, but she's just – I think she's one of those Mozart photographers. She just, you know, gets up in the morning and, you know, great photos come out all day. Uh, she has a book called A Photographer's Life that was released recently. And it's interesting because I think the first time I saw this book, I was a little put off. Um, and not aesthetically, the photos are beautiful, but just the it 's uncomfortable because it 's such a personal subject but uh, she and Susan Sontag were partners, and when Susan died, uh, she documented a lot of that process and literally has photos of her in the hospital after right after she had died and but what's i mean it 's just amazing and I think what what I came to grips with this and and I think it 's just beautiful work now because I think with annie there's there 's no separation between you know her who she is i mean she 's a photographer she takes pictures and she takes them all the time and they 're so good you know and like I said, she has the mozart syndrome where it's where it's you know everything she does is brilliant um, she 's in the news a lot these days for having some financial issues and and legal problems and you know so what if she had the greatest business person in the world? But uh, uh, my God, she can shoot. She's she's incredible. She's one of the best. Uh, another guy that I reviewed a book recently on the Art of Photography podcast. A guy named Dan Winters, uh, who you need to know. Um, Dan is incredible. He does a lot of shots for Texas Monthly. Um, you know, a lot of major publications. He shoots a lot of celebrities, uh, just like Connie Leewitz does. And uh, you know, I mean, Dan's Dan's awesome. Dan kind of wraps up, you know, in a commercial way. Um, you know, a, a large throwback to kind of like Richard Avedon's fashion photos. I, you can tell he's very influenced by, um, you know, painting people like Vermeer, um, you know, stuff like that, the old masters. But he does it in a very contemporary way. That's not dated looking or, um, or or trying to emulate early paintings at all. I mean, he's 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 fabulous. But uh, check Dan out. Uh, another guy, uh, Dwayne. Myers, Michaels, I think, is exceptionally important. And Dwayne, I'm going to mention Dwayne because he really, for me, kind of encapsulates a lot of this creative thinking or thinking for a living or however you want to, you know, talk about this craft subject we've been talking about today. But Dwayne Michaels is a storyteller. Uh, no way around it. And he's been around since probably the late 60s. Uh, he's still alive today. And he's just this master storyteller. Works largely in black and white. I remember the first time I ever saw his work. Um, 
uh, talk about storytelling in a very creepy sense, and I'm talking like Lewis Carroll kind of stuff. Uh, I remember when you know I was a kid and the Police released their Synchronicity album, and if you're familiar with that album, it had uh, you know this awesome cover that that had this montage of black and white photos that were kind of printed across the front with these you know color streaks that ran through them, and there were three of them, and each one of the the band members was in there, and I just remember this portrait of, of well, they were all amazing, but you know Stuart Copeland with all these weird instruments, and I think it was a harp or something, in particular this neat shot of Sting with a skull and it was just so creepy and so awesome all at the same time and I found out years later that that was Dwayne Michaels who, who did that shoot. Uh, Dwayne is just like I said he's a master storyteller he he works in series sometimes uh, he puts out fine artwork and uses his own handwriting to even talk about you know parts of the story and he uses a lot of celebrities just because he's friends in high places he's been around forever uh, but uh, what's interesting about to me about Dwayne is he, he nothing is gimmicky with him uh, he uses fairly standard techniques to do things. He'll use double exposures, and that's about as wild as it gets sometimes. Um, but it's just simply things you can manipulate within the image. He works largely in black and white. Uh, anyway, check his stuff out. I'll have a link in the show notes. And then finally, I think you know, on the commercial end of things, Steve McCurry is somebody you know who's extremely important, uh, very well known as a National Geographic photographer. And I think his most famous image is probably one of the most, most famous images in the world, which is the uh, Afghan girl, the girl from Afghanistan, uh, that he shot. Gosh, I think that was in the 70s. It's a Kodachrome photo, and she's got these you know really vivid eyes that kind of look at It's kind of the Mona Lisa photography, if you will. And uh, it's interesting because the project, it, it was an interesting idea. I just didn't think the results were, were as stunning as that original shot was because, I mean, it's hard to beat that. But he had no idea who it was. It was just a peasant girl. And he actually went back in the 90s for this anniversary, and they, you know, National Geographic paid for it. And they actually found her and then did it then and now shot. And it's real obvious because she has these really fetching eyes, if you will. Um, but anyway, uh, Steve McCurry is definitely a must-know. He has many other famous photos as well and a long career and um, it's just, just unbelievably fabulous. Um, one other subject I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about a couple of other people who are probably a little lesser known. Uh, that I just am very inspired by and I think do awesome, outstanding, well-thought-out work. Um, it, wedding photography is a real weird subject for me, and you probably heard me talk about this before. I, I, I've done wedding gigs before and found out very quickly it was not for me. I have the utmost respect for people who do that and do it well. Um, it's hard. It is so difficult. Uh, for me, it was walking into a wedding with a bunch of strangers, people I didn't know, and trying to do these portrait types of setups and capture the personality. It's so difficult. Um, not to mention that it's hard work. <laughs> it's a long day. you got to deal with uh, brides and mothers of brides, and, and it's just... Uh, it was not something that I had any passion for, but there are people I do respect what goes into doing a wedding and hats off. Those people are, are largely unknown. Um, and it's, it's, it's not an easy gig. Um, there's a guy, he's probably the most well-known or one of the more well-known wedding photographers. His name is, uh, Joe, uh, Bizink. And I think that's how you pronounce it. The last name is spelled B-U-I-S-S-I-N-K. So I think it's like business. It's Bizink. Um, and Joe is pretty amazing. Um, I became familiar with his work a couple years ago when Apple released Aperture. And they had a little mini website that they um, 
they had some videos of people using Aperture on anyway. They they had him on there, and he had a wedding that he was shooting and showing you how easy it is to use their equipment to make these photos. But his photos are really good. Uh, he does very high end celebrity weddings. And what's also interesting about Joe is he shoots film still, uh, mainly for black and white and infrared pictures. And what's cool though is okay, well, a lot of wedding photographers that's a big pain to have to go get that stuff processed, get prints made, uh, get everything scanned, and with weddings you're usually required or expected to have a pretty quick turnaround of images because that's what your competition does. And uh, it's it's cool to see somebody like Joe who who goes the extra mile on that, and I think it pays off. I think his black and white work is outstanding. I think his infrared shots are beautiful, and they look a little bit different than the digital shots do. And he shoots both, obviously. And and I think it's worth going that extra mile, putting that little bit of extra effort into it. Uh, anyway, he's got a great website, and you can see all his wonderful work. Um, second is a uh, interesting photographer that I you may not be familiar with at all. He's a guy who works here in Dallas locally, and I'd love to get him on the show sometime. In fact, I'm going to work on doing that because I think he's just completely talented. Uh, a friend of mine named George Fiala. And George, uh, he does things other than weddings, but weddings, I think, are his bread and butter. Uh, he's still old-school film guy. He shoots on Hasselblads, and he just has this beautiful color sense to the stuff he shoots. He does black and whites that are brilliant. Uh, go to his website and look at him. I, I just think he is such a raw talent and, you know, I think very underrated as a photographer, and he has no idea that I'm mentioning him in this podcast, which, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that'll work in my favor in getting him on here to talk sometime because I think he's just a great mind um, and uh, does incredible stuff. Uh, and also, finally, I want to mention another another guy that I've run across in recent uh, months, a um, gentleman by the name of Frank Lopez. And Frank is extremely interesting to me because I think he um, – He's been a photographer for years and years, but he's really carved his niche recently, much like Tom Burrell, who I was talking about before uh, when I was talking about fine art photographers. And I think Frank, uh, what, what his his thing is he does historical process. And I took a wet plate uh, collodion workshop with him, and he does ten types, and he does wet plate, and he does, I mean, it's just, and he has all that stuff mastered. He's done a ton of study on it, and it is hard. There's a lot of science involved, there's a lot of chemistry involved, and there's a lot of not hurting yourself involved, or burning your hands, or, you know, losing your eyesight. And Anyway, Frank is just, he's brilliant. What I love the most about Frank is that uh, for a living, he teaches a high school photography program and he's exposing kids to these early processes and the awards and the scholarships and the stuff that he does for his students they do trips to china you got some guy who's doing the right gig and i think education especially in the united states right now is in such a a crappy state uh that it's not i know some very good teachers and i don't mean to insult everybody uh but i think the good the good teachers and they who know who they are few and far between and they don't make money at it they do it because they love it um they're not doing it for the bread i can tell you that and i think frank is one of those guys who he's just doing the right thing if he can inspire kids to go on and be better photographers at a high school age shooting on a professional level and be such a great photographer himself and to take these historical processes and and kind of come back around and i think what speaks to me about this and this is a subjective statement this is just something that i think you may disagree uh but I, I think you have it's a fairly brief history of photography the entire scope and it hadn't been around that long you know painting and sculpture have been around a lot longer in fact the planet has been around a lot longer but and so it's fairly new uh but it is an interesting history and i think for some reason in the last oh 20 years maybe 15 years i think we've gotten so wrapped up in the convenience of shooting with digital that we've kind of tend to 
blow off everything that came before that. And I think that's too bad. I think that's a travesty. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with digital. I think digital is incredible. I, I love it. I, I shoot um, a lot of my work on on, uh, on digital, especially for work-related things. Um, my personal stuff, I prefer to do use film and early process. And, and my feeling on that is that um, I like to make things with my hands. And when I go process film and I use a dark room and an enlarger, I, I'm making things. I'm not sitting at a computer. And, God, we all sit at a computer all day. You know, or most of us do. Why would you want to do that more in the evening when it comes to making art? You know, I I do some of that. I do a lot of Photoshop, but I also do it. You know, I have the misfortune of doing it for a living during the day too. So, so my fine art tends to tends to do that. But anyway, I think if you want a quick, easy way to start standing apart and doing stuff that's creative, is is kind of to go back in this retro sense and learn early processes, learn alternative stuff, learn how to do salt prints, learn how to do contact, learn album, and uh, learn collide and whatever it is um i think that's a real easy way to start differentiating yourself really quickly and i also think it's interesting because there's a challenge there um i think that 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 ideas that are genuinely unique are few and far between i think that most things that people have as ideas are have generally been done before at some point i mean how many times can you shoot headshots or portraits i mean you know, but I think what is going to differentiate you is not so much the innovation of that idea, but what you do with it. And this is going to lead me to the challenge this week. And Wade and I, when we do this podcast together, we always do a pick of the week and we talk about software books or things like that. But this is kind of a special thing because we've been talking about craft and creativity um, all day. And I rattled off a list of some of my favorite uh, photographers. Um, however, in lieu of the pick of the week this week, I'm going to do a challenge of the week. And my challenge for you is this is something that I do and I'm doing right now. I'm not going to share exactly what I'm doing. But, um, or maybe I will later. I just haven't figured it out yet. But uh, this is something that helps me get out of a rut and get me inspired creatively and go to work and get doing things. Um, first of all, what I would do is go to the bookstore, thumb through photography books, thumb through magazines. Don't limit them just to photography magazines, but magazines with good photography. They, they can be photography magazines. And if you're in a hurry, that's probably the better way to do it because they're going to be a better collection in general uh, than something like Home and Garden or Martha Stewart or what have you. Um, they'll have great photos too, is what I'm saying. So don't limit yourself just to that. Uh, so anyway, so thumb through and, and find something that you've never done that somebody else is doing well. Okay, so let's say that you're, and this could be hard, you're thumbing through National Geographic. Actually, it's hard, but this is the cool part about it. You're thumbing through National Geographic, which is largely locations that are fairly exotic or fairly far away from where you live, uh, which is the whole lore of National Geographic, and find something that appeals to you that you've never done photography-wise. And maybe it's a shot, maybe it's a portrait, maybe it's a landscape, maybe it's somebody working, maybe it's a photojournalism shot, maybe it's uh, still life, something like that. But something that appeals to you. And take that and then spend a week trying to find a way to emulate it. Now, here's the cool thing, especially if you pick National Geographic. It's going to be very hard to emulate it exactly. You can't go to that location. You can't, uh, or probably can't. Uh, it's going, yeah, it's going to be hard to, to, to get out in the hills of Afghanistan and find the Afghan girl, for instance. Um, but see how close you can get to it. Find, find a model if it's a person in it. The thing is, is you're never going to hit it exactly. And I am telling you to copy somebody. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to pretend that I'm not. 
But what's interesting is if you spend a week doing this, the whole point of this is not to do something innovative, but the whole point is to learn. It's, it's, it's to step outside your comfort zone and get into something and copy somebody else and try to learn it. And so let's say it's uh, architectural uh, shots of uh, you know uh, urban landscape, downtown kinds of things. Uh, but go out and try to, to match a shot as close as you can. Sometimes you can't get the same subject, but, but try and match the lighting, try and match the color. If, if it's a color shot, try and match the tones if it's black and white. Uh, but really try to emulate that shot as close as you possibly can and spend a week on it or if you don't have a lot of time spend two weeks on it spend a month on it whatever you're able to 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 do with this then when you get to the end the second challenge is to take it and do it again but this time you're going to put your own spin on it so the whole idea of this exercise is you're going to first of all go look at some photos get out of your comfort zone and and see something that you haven't thought of okay and then you're going to copy it and a lot of people may disagree with me on that that you shouldn't try to copy work but i think the only way you're going to learn things is by by copying to an extent i think if you're trying to sell your work and you you are pretty much copied somebody else's style that is a problem but i don't think there's anything wrong with it in a learning capacity but anyway you're going to spend a set amount of time trying to copy that down to the smallest detail as best you can um if you're shooting like flowers or botanicals you're probably going to get it a lot closer than if you're shooting portraits of celebrities, for instance. But anyway, you get my you get my, my point. And then what you do is after that week is up, then you allow then you allow yourself to blow the doors open. It's like, okay, I have copied this exactly. Now I'm going to reinterpret this with my own spin on it. What am I going to communicate? What am I going to say? Maybe it is a black and white photo, and I'm going to do this in color. Or maybe this was uh, you know a landscape uh, that had these weird kind of tones that were shot in the late evening. And by golly, I'm going to do it in the middle of the day when the shadows are doing weird things. Anyway, whatever it is take your own spin on it and really try to blow it out of the water and do your own thing that's where you're not going to copy that's where you've learned something and you're going to do something different with it and these are just exercises um you might get work that you would want to show one day or or you know share with people but you might not but that's not the point the point is to learn from this exercise and and move on and do something better so anyway that's about all i got today i've rambled on long enough in monologue fashion and wade will be back next week i hope and we will uh, get back on our regular schedule. We've both had a lot of traveling this month, so we uh, we actually missed a week last week. But I didn't want to leave you hanging this week, so I thought I'd uh, I'd get on here and um, and talk about creativity, so specifically craft. Anyway, once again, this has been the Art of Photography, and thank you for watching.